Welcome back to our study of uh, Talmud together. Some of these stories, tales, um, interesting, strange, mystical, and wondrous pieces from the Talmud. Uh, very ancient Jewish literature. Last time we looked at a story called The Oven of Achnai. A peculiar story uh, about these sages um, arguing about this oven and whether it was kosher. And it winds up... Uh, in this very uh, extreme sort of uh, climax of an ending for such a uh, mundane halachic discussion. If we can, very briefly, I would love to just recap part one for those who uh, remember from last time, um, and also for those who may not remember from last time. Um, so if I can get a brave volunteer to take a paragraph, we'll just get started. We're on the oven of Achnai part one. You'll see one is unmarked and then there'll be two on the other side. So turn to the oven of Achnai right now. We'll get to part two momentarily. We learned elsewhere, if one cut an oven into separate tiles, place the sand between each tile, Reb Eliezer declared it clean, and the sages declared it unclean. And this was the oven of Achnai. Why the oven of Achnai? said Reb Judah and Samuel's name, it means that they encompassed it with arguments as a snake and proved it unclean. It has been taught. On that day, Reb Eliezer brought forward every imaginable argument, but they did not accept them. Said he to them, if the halacha agrees with me, let this carob tree prove it. Instantly, the carob tree was uprooted a hundred cubits out of its place all right, does somebody else want to take over? I'm going to give a quick recap of the whole thing at the end, so if something doesn't make sense right now, I'm going to go over it at the end. But again, we're just going back over it so we can move to part two for the moment. So does somebody want to pick up? No, it's no proof. No proof. No proof can be brought from a carob tree, they retorted. Again, he said, <coughs> if the halacha agrees with me, let the stream of water prove it. Whereupon the stream of water flows backwards. No proof can be brought from a stream of water, they rejoined. Again, he urged, if the halacha agrees with me, let the walls of the schoolhouse prove it. Whereupon the walls began to tilt. But Joshua rebuked them, saying, when scholars are engaged in a halachic dispute, what do you have to interfere Hence, they did not fall in honor of Reb Joshua, nor did they resume <laughs> the upright in honor of Reb Eliezer. And they are still standing thus inclined. And I'll go ahead and finish it up. Again, he said to them, If the halacha agrees with me, let it be proved from heaven. Whereupon a bat kol spoke out, Why do you dispute with Rebbe Eliezer, seeing that in all matters the halacha agrees with him? But Rebbe Yoshua arose and exclaimed, It is not in heaven. What did he mean by this? said Rebbe Jeremiah. Since the Torah was already given at Mount Sinai, we pay no attention to a bat kol because you have long since written in the Torah at Mount Sinai, after the majority must one incline. Rabbi Natan met Eliyahu, Elijah, and asked him, what did Akadosh Baruch Hu do in that hour? He laughed. Where he, re- he replied, saying, my children have defeated me. My children have defeated me. So I'm moving a little bit quickly through this so we get to part two. So just to recap this whole thing, essentially we've seen a story here in which they're debating about the kosh root, whether an oven is kosher. One sage says it is, and the whole rest of them say it's not. 
um, and they put all their arguments into play, and still all the sages say it's not, and the one dissenting guy says it is. This is Rebbe Eliezer, we see. So he starts performing all these tricks, these wondrous things, to try and prove that the halakha agrees with him. And they say, well, you can't prove it with this uh, carob tree walking down the road, or this stream of water, or the walls beginning to tilt in. None of this stuff actually proves anything vis-a-vis halakha, halakha being Jewish law, and what it is that they, uh, the legal... Uh, the legal results that they arrive at in these disputes. So now what's interesting is at the end of it, Rabbi Eliezer says, well, if the halakha agrees with me, let it be proved from heaven. And this bat kol, which means the daughter of a voice, which is this Talmudic shorthand for a holy voice, for ostensibly maybe the voice of God, but it seems to be one layer removed with this bat kol formulation. It's an entire interesting digression. This voice comes down and says, why do you disagree with this? Seeing that in all matters, the halakha agrees with him. At this point, Rabbi Yoshua, Rabbi Joshua, stands up and says, Loba he, it is not in heaven. He's actually quoting a verse in Deuteronomy here, um, quoting a piece of Torah to make his argument, saying, Oh yeah, well, you, God, gave us the Torah, so we get to figure out what it means and how to interpret it and on all of that, saying that, ha, we the sages are still correct in this. So Rabbi Eliezer, for all of his magic tricks and this voice coming down and agreeing with him, is still wrong. <laughs> So, and here you say, you see it there, since you have written in the Torah at Mount Sinai, after the majority must one incline. <clears throat> so then Rabbi Natan, Rabbi Nathan, talks to Elijah the prophet and says, so what did the blessed Holy One do in that hour? What happened after they told God that God was wrong? So God laughed, saying, my children have defeated me. My children have defeated me. Any questions before we move on to part two? I'm ripping through this really quickly as we did this for part one at our first session, so I don't want to dwell too long here, but any uh, questions to follow up here? All right, so flip over your pages. So now this is what follows in this story. At this time, I would like to, as we did last time, turn it over for... The Hevruta learning, I talked about this last time, that a traditional mode of Talmud learning is actually to learn it with a study partner, just to read it over, see what questions come up, what you understand, what you don't understand. There's no assumption that you have a full working command of it at this point. If it sounds weird, if it looks weird, that's good. You're on the right track. Um, But the idea is just to take a first pass at it with somebody else stumbling over all the weird logic, the names, all of the strangenesses of it, just as a first uh, running pass at it. So I would love to start there for this session as well. Um, So what I suggested for last time is it would be great for you to turn to the person next to you and uh, read it over. Even better if you didn't come with that person or if you don't know that person so well. Um, That said, if you wind up working or learning or reading in a group of three, that's good too. Um, But yeah, get together in a small group and just take turns reading it aloud. Um, As is traditional in a Beit Midrash, a study house, it should be loud. It should be cacophonous with the sounds of Torah. So let's go. I presume you all have gotten to take a little bit of time to have your minds spun around and figure out, well, what on earth is going on here? And come up with various ideas and interpretations, and maybe this means that. And all of this is part of the study of Talmud. As I've said to a a few people, um, Talmud is probably the most difficult written work in Jewish tradition. Um, I have actually 
come along to do a lot of cleaning up for it in that I gave it punctuation, and I also filled in a lot of the pronouns. A couple of folks mentioned that the pronouns, wait, who is he in this place? The original text has even less of that than I've put in, and so perhaps I could be more useful in putting in even more of it, but I tried to clean it up. So um, this translation for all of its mess and warts and all of that, and all of what works and is pretty and not sort of... Uh, King Jamesian in its uh, rhetoric. This is my translation, and I sort of own it. So I am happy to uh, explain the various bits and pieces. That said, I do want to uh, put out there, if this was confusing, if this was hard to understand, if this was bizarre, you're in the right place. And it means you are in the right place in terms of sitting with it, taking it seriously, and taking it in, and being present with it. That this is really part of Talmud study. Um, I go through a lot of these motions myself when I'm learning new pieces of Talmud about, wait, what is going on here? What are they talking about? That it takes a few readings. It takes looking at it with a person, sometimes looking at it with a couple of colleagues, sometimes with a teacher. So um, where you all are, if you thought this was bizarre and difficult to understand, you're in the right room. (laughs) So can I get a volunteer just to read that first paragraph, and we'll begin unpacking it all. It was said, on that day, all articles that had come in contact with the oven, which were declared clean by Rabbi Eliezer, were collected and burned. The sages took a vote and excommunicated them. They said... Who will go and inform him? Rabbi Akiva replied, I will go lest a person who is unworthy of this mission go and thus destroy the whole world. Okay, so hang on. Before we jump into there, I meant to uh, just ask you all very quickly, are there any general Talmud questions? Because last time I gave an overview of the Talmud, what it is, what it means, what it is, is written work, all of that. Um, I just wanted to ask, are there any more general questions outside of this text that I might be able to answer before we get very specific? Yeah. Are, is, are there, like, I have to put this trivially because that would be a better way to. That's fine. Is there like a? Are there a list of recurring characters? Like is is Revakiva in in many many of the stories? Is Revelliezer in many? Would we recognize these Rebbe's from other Talmudic discussions? Most of these you would. Um, that said, each one of them is linked to so many stories that I once took a class about Talmudic personalities that tried to. Um, explain each one as a character and it begins to fall apart because they as characters act as different characters in one another's stories. It becomes a very tangled sort of web, but if you were to imagine a sort of dramatis personae of the Talmud, um, these characters you're seeing are not more obscure ones. There are pretty obscure ones, but these are not uh, mostly, yeah, these are not really obscure ones, um, particularly in part two. And can we assume that Yeah, all right, so that's a good place to get into this this paragraph. Yes, we can assume that Rebbe Akiva was part of that body of sages who made that decision to excommunicate him. Other question? Yeah, Linda. It seems that he, Rabbi Akiva, was... Uh, considered himself the only one who was worthy of going going to uh, Rabbi Eliezer and informing him of their uh, feelings about the matter. Correct. He does seem to assume that he is the only one suitable to do this. Any responses to that? Yeah, go ahead. I mean, other than just the sheer arrogance of that, (laughs) it seems seems interesting that they think that this act of theirs, if done by an unworthy person, would have such dire consequences, and yet they feel the action is justified because of one disagreement they had with this rabbi where they thought he was wrong about something, that they're risking the destruction of the world 
to prove their point further. So you make a great point. One thing that's interesting here, not all of them necessarily think it's about the destruction of the world. Rebbe Akiva seems pretty clear that a, the wrong person doing this will destroy the whole world. It's not clear whether they agree with him or disagree with him here. Um, the, the voices of the sages are curiously silent here. Yeah. You don't hear them arguing about, well, who's going to go or whatever. You just hear Rebbe Akiva saying, I'm going to do this. I'm going to be the one to tell him, because if the wrong one of you does it, it's at the expense of the whole world. Um, so it's interesting that we don't hear their conversation here. Um, and it's also interesting that the stakes seem to be that high over whether or not this oven is kosher. Yeah, because it really, it seems to still strike me that everything points to the sages being wrong on this matter. <laughs> the, 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 you know, impending destruction of the world, the Holocaust, <laughs> agreeing with Rabbi Eliezer, but it, they're, they seem to have come with the idea that, that the idea of majority rule is more important than actually being correct on that. It's an interesting thing that somehow the, uh, principle of it, seems to be outweighing the practical issues involved, or even the practical dangers. Yeah. But, but Rebbe Akiva's statement doesn't even focus on the principle. He that's right. That the wrong person <laughs> sends the message the world is going to be destroyed. So Rebbe Akiva says this is a fait accompli. This is, um, in Talmudic terms, you would say it's bediavad. It's the after-the-fact scenario. He says, all right, now that this has all happened... Uh, I should be the one to go handle this because it's a bad situation. You're right to point out that this has already taken place. Um, yeah. So is there a pecking order for the rabbis? You are correct to ask that. Generally speaking, there isn't one that's set in stone. One oftentimes gets the sense that some are correct more often than others and some have bigger names with a bigger footprint on the Talmud. Um, let me say a couple words about Rebbe Akiva here. He is a very interesting figure. He is said to have come from a family of low status, of low birth. He was said to have been an uneducated peasant who was first exposed to Torah at the age of 40. It was the first time he ever learned Torah was he was 40 years old, and from that point, he became uh, one of the greatest, if not the greatest sages of his generation. Um, Interesting number. Yes. Very interesting. Bert, I, I love it. Yeah, I, Bert makes an interesting point, not just that it's an interesting number, but that paying attention to these numbers is always a fascinating thing in these stories. Yeah. But so many things are 40 days and 40 nights. Hence an interesting number, exactly. Yeah, it, it comes up all the time. And That's my right. My understanding of it is it means a long time, and they really don't know how long it is. And they just put that number on. So... In biblical shorthand, in biblical Hebrew, oftentimes 40 is this word, is this number that means a long time. 70 gets used in the same way too. Um, 70 you see getting used more often in the Talmud, for instance. They talk about the, this body called the Sanhedrin, which is the ancient rabbinic court that you see in the Talmud. There's even a tractate of Talmud called Sanhedrin. And they talk about the 70 members of it. It's another one of these things. 40, it's an interesting question whether it's supposed to be a stand-in for a long time or whether it's supposed to just mean that he was an adult. Um, but you're right. It's interesting. Uh, the idea is that you're supposed to hear all of these different voices saying, yes, it's a long time. Yes, it means he's an adult. Maybe that's also uh, the age at which you're supposed to start learning uh, Zohar and Kabbalah and all of these things. The idea in this kind of study is that you make yourself present to all of these different uh, voices, traditions, text, all of that sort of comes in. So that's a big piece of what this kind of study is, holding all of those texts. So back to Rebbe Akiva for a second. Yes. It's communication. 
Yeah. I never heard that we had this communication. I'm going to cover that after Rebbe Akiva. <laughs> so Rebbe Akiva, first of all. So he started learning Torah at age 40 and became a master, one of the great masters of all of uh, Jewish tradition, certainly of his generation. He is also an interesting figure in that he aligned himself with the Bar Kokhva revolts of the year 133. Um, which was when this guy Bar Kochva, or Bar Kochva, declared himself the Messiah and launched a revolt against the Romans. He managed to carve out a Jewish republic in the land of Israel for three years before they were militarily crushed. They made their last stand at the fortress of Betar. Um, interesting piece of Jewish trivia. The mourner's Kaddish, the Kaddishia Tome, the rabbis tell us today that the first time that we ever heard the mourner's Kaddish was what the... Jews who saw them defeated at Betar said when they saw the collapse of Bar Kokhva and the capture of Rebbe Akiva and the collapse of that Jewish uh, revolt and like nascent Jewish state, they spontaneously recited the Kaddishia Tome, which is an interesting rabbinic piece, I think. So Rebbe Akiva was not just uh, one of the greatest sages of his generation, but he was also part of the politics and the current events and the military affairs in that way. Um, and he was part of this messianic movement. So he's a fascinating character in many ways. Um, what more would I say about Akiva? I think that's enough for the moment. Um, one, I'll say one more thing. It's the curse of being a rabbi. Uh, one of the more beautiful things I heard about him is that somebody asked him, he was staring at a rock one time in a waterfall, and somebody asked him, why are you staring at this rock? And he said, look at this rock. He said, this rock is hard as stone, and yet it has been carved out by the softness of this water. Thus has been the imprint of Torah on my heart. Which I think, I thought so too. That's why I wanted to share that one last piece from Rabbi Akiva. So, excommunication. Another great question. Um, yes, excommunication did exist at this time. This idea of cherem, or banning somebody, um, forcing them out of the community in that way. I don't know if anybody has read the book A Driven Leaf. Um, yeah, so it's a really incredible book. It's a sort of historical fiction about these Talmudic characters, and it deals with the most famous excommunication in the Talmud sort of history, the um, excommunication of a figure named Elisha ben Avuya, who was also called the Acher. They renamed him the Other after his heresy, and they excommunicated him. And there are a lot of different Talmudic stories around his excommunication and his heresy. We may read some of that at some point, but we'll see. Um, but yes, excommunication is live and well at this time. Are there any further questions about excommunication? When, when and how did it stop? Never did. Never. <laughs> excommunication exists as a practice up all the way through pretty much current times. Not by progressive Jews. Yeah. Let me put it like this. I haven't heard of anybody being yeah. excommunicated in a formal way of putting cherem upon them. Um, there are contemporary instances uh, for instance, this is a little incendiary to talk about, but there were very extreme rabbis that certain placed certain kind of harems and uh, even curses of death upon Yitzhak Rabin while he was still alive. So this is not some, this is something that has existed up until contemporary times. Um, even through the Middle Ages, you hear about the, uh, for instance, one of the famous examples is the excommunication of Baruch Spinoza. Um, so this is something that Jewish communities have had. It has been part of the toolkit um, for a very long time. Wouldn't you say Mordecai Kaplan was excommunicated from the conservative movement? Yes, an excellent example. He was placed under harem. They collected all, as many of his books as they could. Well, the conservative movement didn't excommunicate him, but the Orthodox did collect all of his books and burn them in a public book burning, Kaplan being the founder of Reconstructionist Judaism. So again, this is not... 
There's also kind of a funny story about the first time you talk about Ashkenazi and Sephardi Jews went their separate ways as different communities with different customs. And there's a funny story about the first time they ran into one another after centuries of being apart and promptly excommunicated one another. Um, <laughs> they somehow managed to get over it, but it's a funny story. So excommunication, yes, is alive and well. Um, I saw a couple of hands. Yeah. Yeah. So my question was was uh, if this was something that was reserved for only the most extreme cases, or if it was a little more common, because it it seems like in this case that it's it's a very extreme measure that they're going to specifically in, in excommunicating him, in that it's going in that it could conceivably have these consequences. And you should read it that way. It is meant to be read as extreme and extremely unusual. Okay. Um, let me put it like this. They're not looking to excommunicate the average Am Haaretz, the you know, Jew on the street, whatever. This is something that they're reserving for very, very important figures who are teaching and propagating something that they find threatening to the body politic. Um, excommunication doesn't come about just as a result of they find you unpleasant. Again, the Talmud thrives on this idea of machloket, an argument for the sake of heaven. So they're very much in this idea of that an argument is a positive thing. But there's something about what's gone on here that has made them feel threatened. Yeah. So, so this is obviously going to DEFCON 1 very quickly. Yes. It appears that way. And, and maybe you just need to give us some perspective. Maybe the oven was really that important and clean and not clean. Or is this a veiled argument about something else? I want to reserve uh, making a broad statement about this is the meaning of this text till we get toward the end. Okay. Um, because there are broader implications that are going to unfold themselves here. Um, suffice it to say that the sages, the Rabbanim as a group, felt threatened by what happened in part one of our story. So yeah, and then, yeah, go ahead. Threat have been the method of, uh, of, of proof that Eliezer attempted to bring where he was trying to, to call upon divine evidence and the rabbis thought that this, this appellation to the divine was threatening to them because they had created an earthly court that was supposed to be the deciding factor of the sages and that this idea that by just calling on the halakha that you could prove your point without input of the sages was what was such a threat. It's a great theory, great idea. There are a few other ideas we can unpack as this goes on, but I, I appreciate your uh, sharing that one because that's a very compelling reading of this. Did you have a... I'm sorry if this is off the top. No, no worries. Is intermarriage considered something worth excommunicating? <laughs> that is off topic. Um, and welcome nonetheless. Um... I'll put it like this. It would depend on who you ask. Um, there are some traditional authorities that in centuries preceding this one would view that as the kind of act that places one outside of the Jewish community. So it's not even that you need to be excommunicated. It's that you have already distanced yourself from the community in times when boundaries were far more uh, concrete, shall we say, and not so permeable, not so porous, that boundaries between who is Jewish, who is not, and what that means in terms of your security, your community, all of those things, um, that would have probably felt threatening and felt scary and felt like a renunciation of Judaism, um, it doesn't. it isn't necessarily the kind of thing that would have brought on excommunication because, again, I would encourage you all to think of excommunication as something that happens in response to a threat. Um, that said, there are more contemporary and I would argue radical um, voices that would argue that, yes, that is... Yes. Bert. What is getting destroyed here? It says destroy the whole world. What, what's the Hebrew here? Because world, there's a lot of different words that are translated as world. Um, <clears throat> is it the earth? 
probably Kola Ulam. I'm trying to remember exactly what it is. Kolalam? Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. That, that has more of a sense of the universe. Yes, exactly. It is supposed to be conceived as it, lest everything be destroyed. Everything just explodes. Yeah. Also, this is getting a little esoteric, but in this era, this was not an era in Jewish tradition or history in which there was an understanding of any kind of extraplanetary space. Judaism begins to become cognizant and conscious of space and things out there beyond just our planet, not, you know, our planet not being the entire existence of everything, much later. Um, that happens with the convergence with Muslim philosophies, and it happens in and around some of the Kabbalistic stuff, and there's a... That, that gets us a little bit further afield, but when they say Kahul HaOlam, they're thinking about, yeah, this world right here, but that is all of existence as far as they can tell. As well as time. Uh, okay, so... <laughs> <laughs> Bert, I love where, I love where you take us. So, the one thing that's funny here, and nobody's quite, I'll go ahead and put this out there. These rabbis didn't necessarily live in the same era historically. The Talmud exists outside of time. They have an expression that they say, that this is, it's said in Torah, in, uh, I think it's in Genesis, they say, Ein Mukdam Torah. Um, they certainly say it in Deuteronomy. It's this idea, it means literally there is no early in the Torah. It's an idea that temporality doesn't have a place here. There is no before. There is no after. That there is something timeless about this. It's the reason that you can have a sage from the year 400 debating a sage from the year 100 in this text, and that makes perfect sense to them. They're not bothered by that. They come, you know, they're living in a world and in an era, and most of Jewish uh, tradition lived in an in a context in which there isn't an idea of historicity. This idea of historicity doesn't exist for most of them. This idea of marking exact time and historical progressions and exactly is more of an abstract thing. They see things in cyclical ways, in ways that don't necessarily have beginning and end. Um, if you are really interested in that as a concept, there is a writer called Yerushalmi, that's his last name, um, who wrote a book called Zachor, which means to remember, and he writes about the convergence between Jewish memory and historicity and a lot of themes around time in Jewish thought. Um, but that's as far as I'm going to go here tonight. So... So let's come back to that when we get there. I think you're absolutely right to bring that in because here we see it in action. Um, let's do the second paragraph and then let's come right back to that. So does anybody want to read paragraph two? What did Rav Akiva do? He put on black garments and wrapped himself in black and came to sit down at a distance of four cubits from Rav Eliezer. Rav Eliezer asked Akiva, what is the matter? Rav Akiva replied, Rabbi, it seems your colleagues are distancing themselves from you. Okay. Hmm. Questions about, yeah. Paragraph two. Yeah, I thought the phrasing of Akiva's statement of, it seems your colleagues are distancing themselves from you, Mm -hmm. is separating himself from the sages who have voted to excommunicate Rebeliezer. There's an interesting thing going on there, isn't there? He's not totally owning that. He's saying, first, you know, let me be the person who goes on this mission because I'm I'm the only one, our... I am at least for sure worthy of this gig. Mm-hmm. And then he later is trying to distance himself from it. And I just find that to be a very interesting sort of dichotomy of action and, and 
you know, what he, what he says he's going to do and then what he does. I'm going to sharpen the point a little bit to that. Do we think that that, uh, that that's a stance that's, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, Evasive. No, I was going to say ethical. Do we think that Rabbi Akiva is actually being straightforward or is it being honest here? Or is this like a disingenuous thing that he's saying? This, I think this is the only thing he says. He doesn't say, he doesn't tell him he's excommunicated. This is like as, as indirect as you can be. It seems like somehow they're distancing themselves. So just to make it really clear what's going on here, the black garments and the wrapping himself in black and sitting down on the floor, the floor is the implication here. These are all funereal mourning kinds of things. He's going through the, through this, through the motions with mourning. So Rebbe Eliezer says, what are you doing? It looks like you're in mourning. And he says, well, it seems your colleagues are distancing themselves from you. The other thing he does, which I couldn't translate cleanly, and so I want to make you all alert of it here. I translated that rabbi. It seems your colleagues are distancing themselves from you. So the Talmud, you see all this stuff where I do R dot Akiva? That's what the Talmud does. It's meant as shorthand for, you know, rabbi, rav, rabbi, whatever. It spells it out, rabbi, which means my rav, literally in Hebrew. You could translate that as my master if you really wanted to. Um, but he's calling him by a very... He's, he's being very formal with the honorific here in a way that uh, didn't, I think, come through in the English, but I think is worth noting in the Hebrew. Yeah. I don't understand what parasha and Torah is this related to. Um, so Talmud isn't necessarily related purely to Parsha. It's not related just to Torah. Sometimes they'll lift Hebrew Bible verses that are all over the Bible, so they might be in the book of Jeremiah or Isaiah or in Proverbs or Psalms or whatever, but they're not necessarily in Torah. So Talmud doesn't follow the cycle of the Parshiot, like um, Zohar does, for instance. Zohar, the work of Kabbalah, the long mystical work, does look at the Parshiot. Um, there are lots and lots of other commentaries and works that do. The Talmud uh, exists more in its own sort of uh, space. The Parsha? Isn't it supposed to make it more relevant to people? (laughs) (laughs) Not the Talmud necessarily. So I think you might be thinking of Haftarah. Yeah, Haftarah are those readings that get tacked on to Torah portions. Like each week there will be an additional reading. You know what I'm talking about? And those are meant to sort of make it relevant, to speak some kind of current events kind of thing to it. Bert, take it away. I put on the table, going back to the first part of this, that, quote, it is not in heaven, which is from Deuteronomy. It is not in heaven that we should go up and get it. It is, it's God or Moses speaking, God speaking through Moses, but it is as close to you as your lips and in your heart to do it. And that, that verse from Deuteronomy, which was quoted here, is... Don't go up to heaven, which is what um, Eliezer was doing. He was asking for miracles, but what God is saying, at least one interpretation of Deuteronomy, mm-hmm. is the meaning of all this is in your heart and for you to figure out it in your head. And it's something so that's very present. Maybe connected to that verse in Deuteronomy. Yeah, then they get very practical. One third of the crop is. Uh, <laughs> 
they are what is it lost? Maybe a drought, but they don't save. Yeah. <laughs> they blame him for So another everything's one third. Another piece, just uh, a word about what what's what is this about? Well, uh, that's a big debate today, actually, in contemporary academic scholarship. What is the Talmud about? What's it for? Who is it for? Um, and that's not entirely clear. I mentioned the difficulty of these texts. There's a lot of scholarship that says today that actually regular Jews weren't meant to read this. They weren't meant to know about it. They weren't meant to hear about it. That this, in its original form, was supposed to be something for the elites. And keep in mind, they were talking about men back then, too. That only the special, learned, rabbinic elite men of their era were really allowed to access this. And let me also put out there, there are a lot of very, very hardline traditional Jews that still believe that women should are not allowed to learn Talmud, that they're not good enough for this or whatever. Um, so... What I'm doing here is, yes, I'm acknowledging that this is very difficult, and I also think that there is a way in, and I think these stories have a lot to unfold, and they unfold themselves over time. My experience with this story is that it has continued to unfold itself for me for the last 15 to 20 years, this one particular story. Every time I read it, I learn something new from it, and I have just studied it and restudied it. So um, so I think these stories are worth it. So that's just a word on why I read this. What's this about? Um, yeah, hand over here. Did you have a... very bright people sitting around and taking things to another level. Mm-hmm. So I'll just uh, recap very briefly, like sort of my, uh, some of my intro from last week that uh, genre-wise, there are two parts of the Talmud. First, the Talmud is the longest written work in the ancient world by four times. Nothing gets anywhere close to as long as the Talmud. Um, the Talmud is 63 tractates, uh, each with a different name. If you look at the bottom, it says Tractate Baba Metzia. Um, there are two actual Talmuds that are very, very similar, the Babylonian Talmud and what is called the Palestinian Talmud. In Hebrew, it's called the Bavli and the Yerushalmi, the Jerusalemite Talmud. Um, the Talmud is sort of split between two genres. It is uh, legal work. It is prescriptive. It is talking about halakha and rules and laws. And then it also has stories and legends and fables and mystical tellings and characters and all of that. So in this class, in this Talmud thing, we are looking at the stories and the characters and what mystical resonances come forth from it. Uh, but because it is an oral work, an oral tradition, you see they get blended together. It gets told like a bunch of guys sitting around talking about the laws about ovens and then suddenly, oh, did you hear about the time they got into this thing about this one oven and then here comes this story um i will say the most extreme and surreal and psychedelic stories i have read in the talmud actually are in a passage talking about the laws for boats because they're talking about how big boats can be and how they should be built and how long and how many people can go on them and they say oh yeah and here's a story of a guy who went on a boat one time and then they're off so there's a reason this is also called the oral torah as opposed to the written torah so yeah linda um, um, i think you answered the question i was going to ask but I always find it interesting that these were written, you know, hundreds or thousands of years ago, mm-hmm. and there's, is there anybody working on these today, other than reading these stories over again, or do they rewrite stories, do they add new stories, I mean, is there contemporary Talmud writing? 
There's contemporary Talmud commentary, and you see early commentaries. The Talmud, I'll say, was redacted probably around seven or eight hundred or so. Not entirely clear when. That's actually a question that scholars have. But by the medieval era, there were already people commenting on the Talmud as a closed set of works. Um, so even today, you have people commenting on the Talmud and rewriting translations and writing new commentary and engaging with it, but they're not adding to it in the same way. It's pretty much a closed work, and then you have this French rabbi from the 1100s who was particularly brilliant named Rashi, who wrote a commentary to practically the entire Talmud. Um, and then you have other Talmudic voices and other people filling in around the margins about what the law is that they have now, which sometimes Jewish law is different than the Talmud back then. So who, who are some of the contemporaries? Doing the same, or are they not? So one of the more interesting, like, very, very contemporary voices is a guy named Adin Steinsaltz, if you've ever heard of Steinsaltz commentaries. His big project has been to translate the entire Talmud into modern uh, idiomatic conversational Hebrew, so that modern secular Israelis can access the Talmud. Um, it's cool, because the Talmud is written in Mishnaic Hebrew, Aramaic, Biblical Hebrew. It's a whole mess of all these different languages. Um, and his whole thing is, let's make this something that you could understand if you were understood contemporary Hebrew. That anybody could be. Yeah, that's the idea. I find that actually to be the most helpful addition for my understanding of it, because you can actually, I speak better modern Hebrew than I understand Aramaic, and so I can read that and then see the linguistic connections and see how it ties together and whatnot, and that jumps right off the page for me. Um, but that's one of the more contemporary voices on the Talmud. Um, other questions? I would love to... Continue on in our narrative. All right, does somebody want to take this third paragraph? Rabbi Akiva tore his clothes, clothing. Rabbi Eliezer uh, tore his clothing, took off his clothes, and sat on the ground, and he cried. The world was then stricken. A third of the olive crop, a third of the wheat harvest, and a third of the barley harvest were, lost, were all lost. Some say the dough in women's hands was spoiled. So I want to point out to you all, see this last little sentence there? Some even say the dough in women's hands was spoiled. You really hear the conversation there. They're sitting around telling this story and somebody else says, oh yeah, well I heard even the dough in women's hands was spoiled. So through the way that they have this written down, you very much hear the conversation in a way that I find to be really powerful. Alright, so questions about this piece. Um, you were talking about earlier about the uh, here we see it in action, the world being destroyed. Um, do you want to say a little more about uh, about this piece? Any reaction? What I was saying before was, you know, just talking about the, the three crops kind of um, brought it down to uh, to a lesser destroying world concept. But then when it's added that some say the dough women's hands was spoiled, that kind of brings it up for me again because it's, you know, so it's more of a mystical thing now. Mm-hmm. You know, the, it goes out of just sort of, I don't know, average drought condition kind of thing to something very cosmic. You're right, yeah. Or a third of it. A third of the crops. Only partially. And maybe Akiva wasn't the right person to go. Maybe he wasn't the right person. Maybe somebody would have done it better. Or maybe this is illustrating that if the wrong person had gone, it would have been total. That thank God Akiva went and only a third of all of this was wiped out. You can, you can slice it either way. And that's one thing that's really amazing about these stories um, is both the complexity and the ambiguity. So two hands over here. Yeah, go ahead. So we have this, this huge reaction, this mm-hmm. huge consequence. 
Is it because the wrong person went? Is it because uh, Akiba was, I mean, because Eliezer was excommunicated? Or is it because of the original dispute and the way that was? What do you think? It, it it's, sounds like it was because of the excommunication at this point. But we don't know for sure. But you can't that's the point. <laughs> exactly. Okay, yeah. So my question is actually about Akiva's, uh, or Eliezer's action. I assume that the, the, the tearing of the clothes and the crying is in grief, but what is the significance of taking off his shoes? Is there some significance in him being barefoot in grief? That yeah, we, we take out the, the shoes. There are there are many traditions that say that when you're entering a house of mourning, you take your shoes off at the door. Okay. Um, that that is, it's not. I, I'm pretty sure it's not halacha around mourning, but it's one of these minhagim. It's one of these uh, uh, customs around okay, it. So him taking off his shoes is is, is just a, a constituent part of him getting ready to mourn. It's part of the whole choreography there. Okay. Yeah. But is not this one like a proof to say that Elizier was right? When every everything before we had all the different miracles. Yeah. Now here is another type of a miracle, and this miracle is like to confirm that he should not be condemned. He should not be uh, excommunicated. I want to reserve any further commentary on that till we get to the end. The very end of the text, I think, actually speaks very in very interesting ways about that. Um, and I would also put out there is another question: Is this a miracle or is this a curse? Why was the world stricken? Good question. The beginning of the story, the only thing it says that the world was stricken is if the wrong person goes. Right. And then Akiva goes, and he doesn't tell him he's excommunicated. He kind of... Dances around it. Dances around it. So maybe it was because he didn't do it right. Could be. Jill, did you have a hand? It's okay. No, go ahead. It's all right. You want to wait? All right. We'll hold off for the moment. We'll keep moving around. All right. Um... Anything else, or shall we move on to the next paragraph? Now we're getting into the really juicy part of this. <laughs> All right, somebody want to read for us? I realize the language is a little verklempt, but, you know. In a baraita, great was the calamity that day for everything upon which Rabbi Eliezer fixed his gaze burned up. Rabban Gamliel was sailing on a ship that day. A huge wave rose and nearly drowned him. It seems to me, he said, but this must be on account of Rabbi Eliezer ben Hirkanos, whereupon he, I assume Gamliel, Gamliel rose to his feet and declared, Master of the universe, it is known and revealed before you that I acted not to safeguard my honor, nor to safeguard the honor of my father's house, but for your own honor, so that the dispute may not be rampant in Israel. At this, the sea subsides. All right, so I want to put in a couple of notes before we take questions or comments or anything. First, a baraita is a it's a text that isn't canonized within the Talmud, but it's a known set of sayings or text or whatever. So it's part of the conversation, but it's not in the canon. Uh, an analogous text might be, say, the Book of Maccabees, which is not canonized in our Bible, but it's part of our tradition. Make sense? Mm-hmm. All right. Um, next thing, Rabbi Eliezer ben Hirkonos. Uh, that's his full name. Herkonos is an interesting name because it's Greek. Blatantly, plainly Greek. It's also blatantly, plainly Jewish. If you look at the Maccabees and the uh, dynasty that they actually put, uh, that they uh, install ruling over the land of Israel after their military victory, the third, I believe, uh, I believe it's the third uh, generation of that dynasty uh, fashions himself John Herkonos. 
of this Jewish dynasty. So this is seen, it's a very interesting synthesis of Greek and Jewish, but it's at a time in which the Jewish has militarily uh, bested that which is Greek and the Greek influences. So it's a very interesting cultural and linguistic synthesis here. Lastly, Rabban Gamliel. A couple of people said to me, well, wait, who is this guy and what does he have to do with any of this? I heard this in a couple of places. Great question. So I could have put a note about Rabban Gamliel in here. I decided to let the story just sort of go for it and we would come back to it. Rabban Gamliel is what is called the Nasi. That is his title within this. Nasi is sort of the head of the Beit Midrash, but it transcends just head of the study hall. It's a political office as well. So you can sort of look at this as the political leader as well as the sages leader of this group of sages. He is the representative of them all in that way. He is their he is their guy, um, their head in that way. So um, for those of you who ask, well, why would he be in this? This is why, because uh, ostensibly he is head of this body. Part of why I didn't put that information in is because the familial relationship is really interesting here, and I made the editorial decision that let's look at that first, and then let me explain in the second telling about the whole political thing, because this whole family thing gets very convoluted as well in the next paragraph. So that's who Rabban Gamliel is. He happens to be the political leader of this... Uh, of the sages at this time. He is part of this dynasty that goes back to Yudahanasi, Judah the prince, as is said, who redacted the Mishnah in the year 220. All right. Questions now? Yeah. So because of this position of his, he would have been, he was the, the, the head of the group of sages who voted to excommunicate Eliezer, meaning that he would have had a major, if not primary, say in the fact that this vote went on. Mm -hmm. So what I wonder then is if the him talking about not uh, to safeguard my honor, really, if he's taught means safeguarding the honor of my family because his sister is Eliezer's wife. Mm -hmm. Eliezer, if his brother-in-law is is committing some heresy or whatever, mm -hmm. it's a personal slight upon uh, Gamliel because he is because of this this familial relation. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, that, that's a great reading of it, and that's a great way to unpack some of these ties, because it is complex. Other, yeah? So uh, what I'm seeing in this is that he's saying, I didn't do this for my own sake or for these other reasons, but, but for you or say God. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so that dispute may not be rampant. And that seems to go back to part one. Mm -hmm. After the majority, one must incline. And I guess I'm getting the view that Eliezer's sin here was not following the majority. And that may be what was so threatening to the sages and the justification for something as harsh as excommunication. Is this a response over here? Yeah, I mean, I, I, maybe I'm naive, but I thought Judaism was about dispute. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, 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 you know, exploring and not necessarily agreeing. Yes, as I mentioned earlier, there's a concept in Judaism called machloket. Um, this idea is that you can have an argument that is for the sake of heaven. It's an argument about religious material. And not just, there are other faith traditions that would say to argue about this stuff is wrong. You're supposed to fall in line with the doctrine. Judaism says that not only is it okay to argue about religious tradition, but it is virtuous. You are supposed to argue about what the religion says, what the right answer is, what is correct in all of these places. Yeah. But at the end of the day, there are still rules to live by. 
That's right. So what we're seeing here is a very interesting piece that's starting to outline, okay, what are the boundaries of Judaism? Yes. When I read this paragraph originally, and I read about the dispute may not be rampant in Israel, at first I read it as Israel the people, Mm -hmm. but then the word in was used. In instead of for. So in would generally define a geographical place. Mm -hmm. But what is interesting is that it talks about may not be rampant in Israel. We have now come from destroying the whole world down to Israel. And so we've now limited the destruction. And yet the paragraph before talks about the world. It doesn't say just in Israel. So now we're, we're trying to figure out the boundaries of what this particular dispute affects. So I'll, I, that's great. And, I, and that leads me to another question. Could you in some ways destroy the world and not destroy Israel, the people or the place? Or vice versa, could you destroy the people and the place of Israel and the world be intact? It depends on how you define the world, how you see the world. And I think in this piece, we're actually seeing a great deal into how the sages see the world. Yeah, Bert. What did Rabbi Gamliel Gamliel do? So it seems... He says it's known and revealed before you that I acted. But there's nothing in here about him acting. Isn't that the excommunication? So in some... He led the group of sages. He's just because he led the group of sages? He seems to have it, have an understanding in his mind. Actually, this is an interesting piece, paragraph, and how it tracks to Jonah. Think about Jonah and the whale. How Jonah just knows, hang on, he's out on the boat, everything goes wrong, alright, I did something, I kinda have to come to terms with it now. We seem to see Rabban Gamliel going through that same process. He's on the boat, he's out to sea, and there's the same process of, okay, something went wrong, I better own this. Um, <laughs> Well, you explain it as Rabbi Gamliel mm-hmm. was, in effect, the head of the sages. Yes. Why wasn't he a person worthy of the mission? And why the text doesn't say. And why did all these terrible things happen? I'm still not clear on that. Why so all this calamity? Clearly... The cosmic clearly the rabbis, as far as they can tell, the cosmic order has been disrupted. The cosmic order of what is right and what is not right has been badly fractured by this encounter. By the encounter of Akiva and uh, even before that, by what has transpired around this oven, has somehow ruptured their world as they know it. And I say that um, without any kind of over. I'm not over at trying to overstate that that this is there is some kind of fundamental rupture in the world as they see it yeah how how active were miracles in the were, were like you sort of the divine intervention and miracles in this time period because uh eliezer he he uproots a tree he reverses the or he causes the tree to be uprooted, he causes a stream to reverse, he causes the walls of a schoolhouse to fall apart, mm-hmm. and here he seems to be igniting the world with his gaze. I mean, was there active, you know, divine intervention during this time period of, of writing, or is the fact that all of these things are occurring around this guy 
particularly unusual. I would say the degree is unusual, the extent of it is unusual, but strange, miraculous, supernatural things were not that unusual. There is another... Um, we're going to, like a lot of the stories we're going to look at in this series that I'm, that I'm teaching, we're going to look at some of these strange things that come up. Um, to talk about Rebbe Eliezer and Rebbe Akiva, there's another story, um, that I did want to mention when we got to this part. Uh, I'm not going to teach it separately because it's very, very short, but it's a piece where they're talking about growing cucumbers. And Rebbe Eliezer says, well, here, I'm really good at that. I can grow some cucumbers. And he does something miraculous, and a whole bunch of cucumbers grow up. And Rebbe Akiva says to him, that's not how you're supposed to do it. You really can't do that. That's not okay. And that's sort of where it stands. That's the end of it. Um, but it's, I forget where it is. It's in a totally different passage, totally different tractate, totally different context. But again, it's those two characters having a conversation in which Rebbe Akiva says to Rebbe Eliezer, you can't do that. That's outside of the bounds. So Eliezer is almost seems to be using magic or, or a direct tap into divine power when that's not an acceptable method of proving an argument. Ah, and we're getting back around to this idea of what might be threatening to the rabbis here. He's using this magic that's not available to the other rabbis and should not be available to the other rabbis. Right. So now we're beginning to like uncover uh, the contours of why it is that the rabbis feel their existence has been ruptured in some way. Bob, did you have a hand? Oh, sorry. Well, yeah. I, I just, go ahead. Do you go One than the other. Just in a larger context where we are questioning all these uh, mystical things that are happening mm-hmm. and and how Rabbi Eliezer uh, was doing something on a mystical, a magical basis, and yet throughout all of our written history, mm-hmm. it is complete with stories of a bush that was burning but was not consumed. Mm-hmm. The, the sea parted. We, we have it consistently through all of our writings of the mystical, the miracle, not just in the Talmud, but almost everything that we have from the beginning. So I'll return to the Torah, in which they say that you cannot practice magic, you cannot practice witchcraft or soothsaying or necromancy or uh, divination or a host of other things like that. The Torah doesn't say it doesn't work. They just say you can't do it. They say that it's forbidden. So there's an idea that there can be that which is miraculous in the world. <laughs> that seems to be the uh, implication, is that God in some ways can be part of this and be doing that, but you're not supposed to access these things. They're, that in some ways manipulating those godly forces or that which is beyond you is, uh, is unacceptable and um, even dangerous. Um, some of that gets tied into and connected to uh, the fall of our King Saul, even. Um, it's, so it, I want to draw a distinction between godly wonders like the burning bush and witchcraft. Um, yeah? Well, I was kind of going in that direction. I was thinking about, um, for instance, Moses going to Pharaoh. Yeah. And all these things <clears throat> happening. But it's not like Moses is making them happen. God's making them happen. And I was thinking, in this case, it's not this rev that's making them happen because humans don't have that power. So if it is God doing all these things, it seems like God, as usual, is trying to make a point to teach a lesson. He's using these people. So, the yeah, go story ahead. of Moses hitting the rock, mm-hmm. where which is one reason that Moses mm-hmm. was not permitted to go into the promised land, mm-hmm. where 
God said, speak to the rock to bring water forth, which would have been God's magic if you want. And Moses instead hit the rock, that being his magic, mm-hmm. God's. And that was judged to be very wrong. So in the rabbinic imagination, I'm going to decide if I want to draw this on the board. It's pretty simple. I'll just say it. Imagine you have God up here and you have people down here. Off to the side, you have the miracle. What happens between person and God in order to affect the miracle, the thing out here, doesn't seem to be clearly spelled out here. It seems to be a little bit mysterious. They don't seem... Let me put it like this. They're not publishing a blueprint exactly for how you uh, ruin the olive crop in that way. Um, it's a, it's an interesting question, I think. Um, and it's an interesting question to line up next to our experiences that we don't do stuff that causes magic to happen in the world as far as most of us can tell. It doesn't make sense like that. It doesn't work like that, I think, for many people. There are people for whom... Um, they experience all kinds of divinity and all kinds of miraculous things in the presence of God in various ways, but we don't think of magic as a utilitarian kind of thing. It seems like um, something they do at kids' birthday parties. So, and in Las Vegas. And in Vegas. I've never been, but I saw so I hear. Um, um, so it's an interesting thing. Yeah, did you have a... Well, uh, one thing you said really struck me, because <clears throat> I was struggling, uh, and I completely agree with it, with, with the last sentence in the first paragraph about destroying the whole world. Mm-hmm. And that is your comment, <clears throat> which is my sense that in this era, um, and, and we don't have this today at all, mm-hmm. it's not in this world we wouldn't have it, but this perception that that there is this, you use the word cosmic fab- fabric, mm-hmm to the universe uh, in that that can be torn mm-hmm. and unbelievable forces I mean it's like uh, Rabbi Amy always you know, talks about uh, like the nuclear reactor I mean you're, you're, when you're, what, you're deal, what you're dealing with here is like it's an incredibly powerful force that you just don't mess, mess with or terrible things happen yes um, I would say that's analogous to the Mishkan in many ways to the uh, to, yeah absolutely that was my reading of, of that saying, you know, what are you going to talk about? Destroy the whole world. Well, that's really what they're talking about. Yeah. Um, which you said. Mm-hmm. Thank you for sure. adding that. We have any other thoughts, or I, I would love to press forward. And we can also, at the end of this, discuss broader... Yeah, one more. Sorry, one thing that Go ahead. Really quick. It, in this thing where it says that everything that everything upon which uh, Eliezer fixed his gaze burned up. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the previous paragraph, Eliezer is grief-stricken. So is he destroying everything around him in grief, or is he starting to kind of go, go more towards the anger side? Or is he not responsible for these things burning up? It's a reaction to, you know, it's, it's a reaction outside of his control. Good question. Um, let's come back to that. The very last sentence of this whole thing, I think, is going to open this up in very interesting ways. But let's... Let's get there, because I think you're right to ask that question. I just want to wait to unpack it a little bit. Okay. Um, I just add? Yes. Following that, of course, <laughs> nothing burns up. That's true. It doesn't say that anything it burned anything up. burned up. What happens is there's a big wave, which has nothing to do with burning. It says that Re- it does make clear that Rebbe Eliezer is deeply and profoundly dangerous, right. but it hasn't identified the danger that he has done um, himself. There is this sort of cosmic, this rending of the cosmic fabric, but it's not clear what Rebbe Eliezer has personally done here. So again, back to this question of God's here, we're here, the magic is out here, and what's happening in between? Um, 
is sort of, it's, I think it's the operative question here. So does somebody want to take us through this, uh, this second to last paragraph, Ima Shalom? And I recognize this is a convoluted paragraph, maybe the most convoluted of the story. Ima Shalom was Reb Eliezer's wife and the sister of Reb and Gamliel. After the incident, she did not allow Reb Eliezer to lower his head in prayer. Now a certain day happened to be Rosh Hodesh, but she thought that the previous month had 29 days, and so the 30th day was Rosh Hodesh. And thus, our Eliezer could not recite the Takanun. However, the previous month had 30 days, so he was permitted to recite Takanun. According to others, she was distracted when a poor man came to the door, and she took bread out of him. When she returned, she found that Rev Eliezer had his head down and was reciting Takanun. Okay. Tachanun is a special prayer that falls in the middle of a Hallel service. A Hallel service only falls for special, special occasions. Um, so you get them on like Sukkot or Shavuot, and you get them for a Rosh Chodesh, which is the first of every month. Um, keep in mind now, I want to take us back out to the big picture. The temple has just been destroyed. We've seen the destruction, essentially, of uh, Judaism's sacrificial worship system of the priest caste and the idea of the priests um, being the conduits to God. What we have here are the very, very nascent beginnings of rabbinic Judaism. What we also have here are the very beginnings of prayer. We don't have prayer really anywhere in the Bible in any way we would understand it. The way in which you relate to God is through sacrifice in the Bible. Um, so it's not until after the Bible, after the temple is destroyed and we can no longer perform sacrifice, that the rabbis actually innovate this thing of prayer. And so here, they're talking about, okay, so there is a very, very special prayer that you only get to say for very special occasions. And when you do it, you would actually prostrate yourself full on the ground. If you've ever seen um, a rabbi or people do this for Yom Kippur or something like this, that was the traditional way in which they would recite Tachanun, um, this prayer within Hallel. Uh, the, the footnote here says it's after the weekday Amidah and not on Rosh Chodesh and Yom Tov. Sorry, I have that the wrong way around in that footnote. My apologies. Oh, Thank you for catching that book. That's the opposite. Um, it should not be said after the, but like on Rosh Chodesh and Yom Tov, that's when that comes up in like a Hallel in that way. Um, thank you. So this question of when did... Hang on a second. <laughs> it's so confusing that I get wrapped around it. No, the footnote was correct. My apologies. It's part of... Sorry, getting back into the swing of things. Um, Is there a typo in the first word of the second line? It says now allowed. Should that be not allowed? After the incident, she did not allow. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Yes, that should be not allowed. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, So, yes. So she had miscounted the days of Rosh Chodesh. Um, Why is she controlling his prayer? This sounds strange. <laughs> Isn't it? Time period that somehow I'm going to tell your wife you it said was that. the woman who was telling him what he could daven and what he couldn't daven. That's right. That would be That's, weird and exceptional yes. and strange for this time. Um, you are absolutely right to pick that up. That this is again. I mentioned that this is a time in which these were the elites. And they were all men, and this was a very patriarchal society. So the fact that she was not allowing him to say this prayer, um, 
as part of the Amidah, thank you, not Hallel, as part of Amidah, um, was what was operative. What I was talking about was that Hallel would have supplanted the Tachanun on special Rosh Chodesh's and uh, holidays. Um, thank you. Should read my own footnote. So this is the uh, this is the conundrum: is how many days are in this month? So if it wasn't Rosh Chodesh, and he would be looking to do this prayer, she had to be watching him and trying to stop him and whatnot. So either she miscalculated the days in the month so that the new moon fell, so that the new moon happened at that time and the new month happened at that time, or a poor person came and distracted her and she went out to take care of this poor person <laughs> and thus wasn't watching him and he fell down on his face in this prayer. Yes. Yeah. You could. Re- I, I, I would think you could read this either as, "Here's one really powerful woman." That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Or what does that tell you about Rabbi Eliezer? Okay. So there are two sides of that. Either perhaps she's really powerful. Which is interesting to think of him as a weak character in contrast to everything that's come before in this in the story. Yeah. Exactly. Does that sound like him? Yeah, Jill. But it says, however, the previous month had 30 days, so he was permitted to write recite Tachanun in the middle of the paragraph. And then the last line says, when she returned and you're like, oh my God, she found that he had his head down. And of course, you know, the next paragraph, oh my God, oh my God, you had Mm -hmm. his head down. Yeah. But it had just said he was allowed to recite it. That's a great catch. So let me explain what allowed to recite is within Jewish law. It's not about her allowing him to do it. So this is that they were allowed to say this prayer because it wasn't a re- exactly the the Jews would have been saying it on that day as a matter of Jewish practice and Jewish law. He was allowed to do it by Jewish law. She was the one stopping him. Um, so that's who is allowing it. Great catch. Um, allowed to uh, is yeah is a, is a great thing to pick up on. Yeah, did it, another so I. I mean, unfortunately, this is looking at, the, at the, the next paragraph, but it almost seems like the fact that he went against his wife's command is he's being punished for that, even yeah, though yeah. he's actually following the law, the, the Jewish law. But the fact that she, what she did, she did out of thinking she was correct, not out of any sort of maliciousness, just sort of out of a miscalculation. And heck, I know I sometimes miscalculate what day of the month it is. Mm-hmm. That that because she thought she was in the right and acted on her intentions, that he acting against her desires, despite being correct, still makes him incorrect. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's very confusing to me in that regard. All right, so hang on, Jill, and then Stephen. But did she not allow him to lower his head in prayer because of the incident? That's what it says. Because after the incident. <clears throat> She did not allow. That seems to be the implication. That seems to be the implication that because of what has transpired, she is not allowing him to. Um, has he been excommunicated because he's no longer a member of the Jewish community? It says, after the incident. <laughs> All right, yeah, Stephen. Okay, this may be way too simplistic. Okay. But is this just an ex- another example of the illogical calamity that has befallen the, these people? You're not the first person to read it that way. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it, it just the, the confusion and women calling up the shots and all that kind of stuff. 
the, the world is turned upside down. It's just another example of that. So one way and one interpretation I've heard of this story is that in uh, more than interpersonal, in sort of organized conflict between groups of people or a party and another party and whatnot, it is entirely possible to start out with a fairly mundane dispute and it spiral into something all-consuming. That I don't think anybody would hear anybody here would be surprised to hear that as an idea. Um, that's one reading I've heard. That's just one reading. Um, do we have other thoughts, or do we want to finish this thing up real quick, and then we'll begin unpacking the sort of broader? Yeah. All right. So who wants to take us out? Get up, get up! She cried out. You have killed my brother. Meanwhile, an announcement came from the house of Rabban Gamliel that he had just died. Rabbi Eliezer asked his wife, how did you know that? She replied, I have a tradition from the house of my father. All gates are locked except for the gates of wounded feelings. <laughs> All right. <laughs> but yeah, go ahead. So my first question, which is what's been bothering me this whole time, is what killed Gomel? How did he die? What did he die of? Because the last time we see him, he's almost drowned, but then calms the sea. Through his through his little speech, and we're left with Gamliel being just—he's <clears throat> on a boat in a calm sea. So now he's dead. So one reading of this is that when he's on the sea, and he's about to die from that wave, what's happening there is that God is upset with what he has done. That God feels that he, Gamliel, as the Nasi, the head of this institution, has somehow overstepped his bounds. That somehow, from, and I say this based on what it is he says that calms God down. That he somehow is throwing his weight and his power around. Because when he says, I haven't done this for my own sake or for my own honor or the honor of my house, uh, my father's house, the dynasty, um, but rather for the people and all of that, that that's the thing that calms it down. That there, God may seem to think here that he has, uh, he is abusing his power. Yeah. That may be the idea here. That in contrast to, uh, Rabban, Rabbi Eliezer having this somehow cosmic, uh, unfixable, uh, insatiable hurt. And that somehow Rebbe Eliezer seems to be tied into enough power that is sort of cosmic and broad that it reaches out and kills him. So even if Rabban Gamliel is squared away and is okay by God, he's still not okay by Rebbe Eliezer. That's one reading. By all means, you all are welcome to offer other readings. That's certainly not the only reading that one can produce from this whole story. Yeah. Is it the fact that Rebbe Eliezer prayed that killed... Um, that seems to be the implication here in a cause and effect sort of way that she is trying to stop him from this prayer every time and then he gets away with it the one time and it kills him that somehow his emotion his experience what he has lived through in conjunction with this devotional uh, reaching out and connecting to God the combination of those two things has killed Raman Gamliel I have a more simplistic explanation. Please do. <laughs> this all occurred because Ima Shalom was distracted. When the poor man came to the door, she took the bread to him. Mm-hmm. And because she took the bread to him, she was not there to make sure that Eliezer was following her orders. orders. And this is the beginning of the phrase that we know 
today that no good deed goes unpunished. <laughs> I've also heard it ex- heard that expressed in that uh, taking care of the poor is more important even than safeguarding the nasi, the life, the, this high political ruler. That taking care of the poor is of the utmost importance. Why do we assume that he died? If the only, it seems to me the only thing that says anything about it is his sister says he did. And you know, I mean, for me, that's the announcement. Announcement came in the house. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Could he have died if wounded feelings? Yeah. 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 He didn't seem to have the hurt feelings. The other thing that's interesting is it comes from her father's house. That's a tradition that comes from the dynasty. This is Rabban Gamliel's very same dynasty that says that. Yeah, you have a Robert G. Jevitha. Well, it, it <coughs> seems like the last two words are sort of the key to the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the whole the whole story seems to revolve around the sensitivity of Rabbi Eliezer mm-hmm. and, and, and some wounded feelings of his that end up causing. That particular formulation, I forget exactly what it is now, is very difficult to translate. I do remember that. And like personal hurt or the gates of um, anguish are other translations you see for it. Um, this was the best sort of colloquial, understandable sort of translation I settled on. That there's something about it's very personal and it's experiential and it's about hurt. Um, well, my sense of it was this is like, this is right up there with idol worship as as really bad thing. There does seem to be this in- implication that leaving somebody just deeply damaged as a person, that's a dangerous thing. Like leaving somebody broken as a human being and just walking away from that, that's a very dangerous thing. Um, a lot of people talk about today in more contemporary times that folks who do very bad things in our world um, oftentimes do so out of a certain kind of personal brokenness or out of a hopelessness or out of certain kinds of spiritual or emotional darkness. Um, maybe the rabbis aren't telling us something that we don't know already. Other thoughts? Yeah. Well, a question about the, the gates being locked. Yeah. Is she talking about physical gates into their, their house, um, gates into their person? Because it seems very strange to say that all gates are locked except for the gates of wounded feelings because that would be like saying that the only way to access us is by harming us that there's that the you know the gates of 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 love of you know laughter of good interpersonal relationships of any sort of thing like that those are all locked those are those don't work the only thing that lets you into this house is wound is being wounded by something so my rabbi, uh, Rabbi Sager once spoke about this in a class I was taking. This is probably 15 years ago, 20, something like that. So what are those gates? I remember I was in a group in a class that was asking him about that. And he talked about the kind of gates we're talking about here. First of all, they're not physical. Yeah. We're talking about something very spiritual here. And we're talking about the gates that restrain one's ability to damage another person. Where does that capacity come from to damage somebody, to reach out and harm someone in a deep spiritual kind of way. Well, the different kinds of gates are oftentimes locked except for the gates of uh, one's own personal brokenness, that that's the place from which one is capable of reaching out and hurting someone else. Okay. That's one reading. I'm not saying it's authoritative, so, but I think it's an interesting uh, way of uh, unpacking this. So 
So Eliezer was so destroyed by this excommunication, by this incident, that even if it wasn't intentional, just that anguish reached out and struck down the person who had wronged him. His brokenness was what enabled him, in this reading, to kill Rabban Gamliel. Not necessarily his intentionality. Yeah, another thought, a couple of thoughts over here. Yeah, first. Before she says, it's a tradition from my house, that all gates are locked except they get some feelings. Well, that's in response to the question that her husband asked. How did you know that? How did you know your brother died? So for me, my interpretation was that um, a gate that is always opened is, um, you know, knowing in your heart what's going on. Mm. Intuition in a certain kind of way, like this certain kind of being, not just a, a knowledge of what's going on, but a certain kind of spiritual uh, closeness to what it is. I think that's a great reading. Um, I appreciate your giving that reading, and I want to say this is sort of the project for all of us now, is, as I mentioned, this story, between its complexity and its ambiguity, begs for various readings. It begs for different readings, and it begs for conflicting readings. Um, this is not a story that... Uh, I'm going to leave you with a nice gift wrap, a nice bow around it about this is what this story means at the end of it because this is not a story that uh, that conveys that. This is not what this story is for. And many of these stories are not for this, for the same... They're not Aesop's fables in that there's a certain specific message you're supposed to walk away with that you could teach to a child. Um, they're very complex stories, um, both in terms of the arguments and the twists and turns, but also in terms of the morality of them. Uh, Linda and then Jill. Or sorry, I, I'm sorry, I skipped over you. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Um, I don't know why we're focusing only on Eliezer's thing that's mm-hmm. bringing this about, because I think that the other side of it is we, they, they reap what they sow. You know, it's a karmic thing where they put out this negativity and he reacted. Mm-hmm. Who's responsible for, for what comes down because of that? Um, Maybe it's not a cosmic fabric so much as it's a cosmic rubber band. <laughs> and you pull it back too hard and here it comes. Yeah. That's a great reading too. And I also think that, that uh, Gamaliel could have just gotten sick from the sick and died from the original swell. <laughs> That's entirely possible. Um, it says that the sea subsided. Um, but he nearly drowned. But he nearly drowned. Uh, but his sister clearly thinks Saliazer killed him. Yes, we, that is pretty clear. So, hang on, so um, Linda and then Jill. I was just going to say that what, your last point, um, about not tying it up neatly with a bow, is back to what I originally said, or originally asked. Mm-hmm. Um, is there a contemporary group? I mean, this is always open for conversation and, and so forth. So um, is, we might as well say there is... We're all contemporaries looking at the ancient text and getting out of it what we're putting into it mm-hmm. and getting out of it, um, which might be different from you know something from a thousand years ago. You asked me earlier, are people still talking about this and looking at this and learning it and whatever? Yeah. I would say so. <laughs> uh, here we are. Yeah, Jill. So is this the end of the story? Like- this is the end of this yeah particular cycle of yeah stories here. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's to be exactly tidied up in a but I just think it's so strange. They never mention the oven again. 
Nope. <laughs> Amazing, right? The oven doesn't even come back. Hell breaks loose in this story. You see it. Yeah. But from a very, it's either yes or no, black or white. Yep. And it ends so spiritual and so esoteric. And I just think that's really strange. I'll put it like this it's not too strange for the Talmud, it's not that unusual for the. Yeah, partly, as I mentioned, partly because this was an oral tradition. Like, the stuff around, uh, like, what is kosher, what is not. Like, I mentioned there's law, and then there's the legends and such. And these things sort of blend together, because they're having a conversation. As I mentioned, these other set of stories about uh, the the mystical tales of Rabba Bar Bar Khanna, um, they start with them talking about laws about boats, and they're like, oh, and here's a guy who went on a boat one time, and then he goes and encounters dragons and giants and genies and evil spirits and all of this on his boat. Um, and that's their conversation. You get to sort of hear it uh, as it unfolds. I would make a suggestion here, and I welcome anybody to argue this with me. I'm, I'm content to argue this because, as I said, this is not a text that is built to have a very cut, clean, dry ending. But I would suggest that the oven doesn't matter. I would suggest that whether the oven is clean or not clean doesn't matter. We have passed the point at which that matters. What it seems like is most important is the process. It is the process by which um, one negotiates disputes vis-a-vis uh, disputes with the one versus the many, disputes within uh, Jewish authorities, disputes with uh, that one is the individual or the community has with God, with spiritual matters, with things that are more esoteric. How do we navigate those disputes um, and our own sense of spirituality and safety in the world? We talked a lot about boundaries and arguments. What is an argument that's okay? As I mentioned, an argument for the sake of heaven is considered virtuous. And yet we seem to have hit the boundaries of what is virtuous here. What is okay? Uh, it seems that, okay, that's all great to have your arguments and argue over all of these spiritual and religious matters. Can you take it too far? Maybe you can. By the time you're threatening people or threatening the entire institution of the rabbis, their whole rabbinic project, by the time you're threatening the democratic quality of it. Who knows what it is, but there, you can get to a point where you have gone too far and you are threatening the entire enterprise. How about the world? Maybe the whole world. Maybe the enterprise is the world. Maybe it's not just the decision-making process. Maybe the enterprise is bigger than that. Stephen? Well, what this is basically is the anatomy of an argument. It, it's you know it, it's like things start out really small, and, mm-hmm. but they're disguised. There, there's something else that's going on, and then it gets to this this incredible, mm-hmm. crazy level, and then ultimately comes down to something spiritual or something philosophical. I think here we see part of why I like this story is it has as sort of 
insane as it is, and as much as it goes in every direction, it does actually encapsulate a great deal of what you see in the Talmud, all packed into one story. You see grappling with boundaries. You see this uh, struggling toward what it means to be Jewish and redefining what it means to be Jewish after the cataclysm of the destruction of the temple, and them trying to put together a Judaism that's based on prayer and based on halakha and based on these rituals. You see the mysticism of it. You see the arguments. You see them grappling with one another and with God and with them trying to figure out, okay, what does it mean that we're now an institution? Um, You actually see so, so much of the Talmud packed into one story here, which I think is part of what's amazing about it. Um, I don't want you actually, I don't want to give you a gift-wrapped nice idea of this is what it means, but I do want you to walk away with your own reading of it, and I want you to walk away then challenging your own reading over the coming days and the coming months. And you know what? I would love for you to come by and sit in my office sometime and say, you know what? Like in a few months from now, schedule an appointment with me and say, so I was thinking about that story, and here's what's bothering me about it, and come back to it, because I find that the richness of these stories is not in the first reading. It's in the reading, and the rereading, and the rediscussing, and the unpacking of them, because these are powerful stories. So I look forward to those of you who have the stomach for weird and strange medicine uh, to unpacking this over the coming sessions and looking at some more of the stories of our rabbis and sages of the Talmud. So thank you all so much for coming tonight.